Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. I'm Jesse Thorne. It's Bullseye. Hope Gap is a movie about divorce. Only it's not really the movie that comes to mind when I say a movie about divorce. The marriage in question has been going on for nearly three decades. The husband and wife are both of retirement age. They have an adult son who's come back home to visit them. Edward, the husband, is played by the English actor Bill Nye. He's distant, a little checked out, and preoccupied. His wife, Grace, is played by my guest, Annette Benning. He leaves her early on, and the film focuses on the wreckage that is left behind. Benning's character is blindsided. She had a plan for her life, and this wasn't it. And that's sort of the film's focus. Can she move on? What does her new future look like? It's an intense character study, and part of what makes it so compelling is that Benning is so in tune with her character. In Hope Gap, you're more than just a witness to her pain. You feel it. Here's a pivotal scene from the movie. Edward tells Grace he's going to leave her. I know this is all a shock, but I do truly believe you'll come to see it's for the best. For the best? I, I'm no good for you, Grace. I don't give you what you want. You don't give me what I want because you're not even trying. You found a way to sneak out of it. Well, I won't let you. I'm sorry. I've, I've, made, up, I've made up my mind. Well, you'll have to unmake it, won't you? This decision involves me. You have to consult me. Don't do this, Grace. It'll only make it worse. You can't just walk away after 29 years. You have to try. I have tried. Annette Manning, welcome to Bullseye. It's great to have you on the show. Thank you very much. I have a comedy podcast, and my co-host on my comedy podcast, Jordan uh, Morris, has a running bit on the show where he talks about a recent film that he saw with a British actor playing an American character. Mm. And when he does it, he says, uh, this is my impression of his impression, but it's sort of like, uh-huh, yeah, yeah, uh-huh, <laughs> yes. Uh, <laughs> And I wonder, it's so unusual for an American actor to play an English character, mm. uh, whether you had to hype yourself up to take the part <laughs> for that reason. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a good way of describing it. I mean, I've done it before, but every time I do it, I you feel, I guess I feel, um, i got to sort of reapproach it because it's the character, it's the story, it's... Um, it's always a bit different, but, you know, I worked on it, and I had a coach I worked with beforehand I liked very much and put a lot of energy into that and gave it my best. The thing that would worry me is that you have to get it to a place where there is no concern for, I presume, that yeah. you have to get it to the place where there is no concern for the technical so that you can be a craftsperson and artist. Hopefully, exactly, and not be thinking about it. That's the goal for sure. 
Did people correct you on set? Did you, you know, ever get I, anything I, wrong? I invited everybody to because, of course, they all had very real accents. Um, so I was very, you know, all over everybody saying, please correct me if you if you hear something, let me know. I'd be more than happy to hear that. And um, so I just sort of trusted my comrades to kind of give me a poke if I needed one. And thinking also in a movie, you can always correct it afterwards if there's a problem. And so... Yeah. So one time, Dick Van Dyke told me, uh, Dick Van Dyke, who, by the way, is the most delightful human being nicest, on earth. He's the nicest man. <laughs> he, he is incredible. You can't I believe love him. you can't believe how thoroughly he's delivering on the promise of talking to Dick Van Dyke. But uh, Dick Van Dyke told me he's like, yeah, nobody told me I was doing a bad job. <laughs> I know. I feel for him. You get so much teasing about that. Um, I don't yeah. care. I'm on, I'm on team Dick Van Dyke and Mary He's so great too. in it. Who cares? Me too. I'm totally on that team. <laughs> I adore him. So in this film, your character is in a very long and somewhat troubled marriage. And locked into <laughs> a locked in, into kind of a, a pattern of missed communication where your character looks for connection by poking bruises and Bill Nye's character, your, your husband walks away and is distant and is nice, but doesn't engage. And I wonder which of those you identify more with in real life. Ah, that's a good question. Um, I'm probably, let's see. Well, I definitely, sometimes avoid confrontation to uh, fault. So I think I'm getting a little bit better with that. But um, yeah, she does. That's a great way of putting it. She does nudge him. She's sort of, well, she's at a point, I think, when she, that she does that. And I know that I think that annoys some people about this woman. And I kind of like that, that she's, that's her thing, that she's doing that and maybe to a fault. But then it, there's an argument to be made. Obviously, I tried to play her that way that, yeah, well, she's, she's, trying, to fig, she's trying to scratch what's under the surface. She's trying to get, scratch the scab to get what's underneath there because something she's intuitively understanding that there's something wrong. One of the things that she does as a character is kind of, you know, Either I was going to say suck all the air from the room, but she kind of inflates every room that she's in. You know what I mean? Like she really, she really expands outward to fill the space, whatever it is. And she doesn't do it maliciously at all. Um, but that just is the nature of what she does. And I wondered how you feel about being a movie star and knowing that like every room you walk into, you're a movie star. Um, and so... Do you have to like modulate or be aware of that effect that you can have on a room by virtue of your, you know, your career? Sometimes I'm aware of that, but most of the time not. Most of the time it doesn't feel like that. And also I I don't I don't see myself as that kind of presence in a room even if people recognize me. I I tend to kind of not always, but sometimes I kind of want to be smaller, like if I'm going into a room. I don't really want to attract attention. 
Um, and most of the time I don't. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's all like, like, I don't feel that all the time. Um, uh, I'm really lucky that I just, you know, kind of live my life in a grocery store. I see my neighbors and I have a pretty normal day-to-day kind of uh, existence. And then every once in a while I'm doing something where I go and suddenly like pe- people are taking my picture. It still s- seems kind of funny. Um, I'm very happy to not be in that position of like, you know, people making a fuss. Um, and I'm lucky because I haven't had to. I mean, I've especially having all these kids. And now that my kids are grown, I'm really feeling it because as my as I was having children and I would be in and then I would disappear and then I would go off in my life. And um, it was a wonderful, always a wonderful kind of respite. Like you would like visit work and show business, do you mean? Yeah. And then I would just be on the floor and with my <laughs> kids. So that was always just for me such a joy that I could could kind of walk away. And I still feel that, except that now I'm not chasing all these children. Um, it's just a different life. It's It's great. You're a Kansan, right, originally? I was born in Kansas. So what got you to San Diego and eventually San Francisco? My dad was offered to go. First of all, he went from Iowa to Topeka to run an office for an insurance company. Then they went to Wichita. They were only in Topeka for a year, went to Wichita for six years, and then we moved to San Diego because he had a choice between moving to Denver, I think it was, in San Diego to run an office, and he picked San Diego. So we moved there in 1965. San Diego is a whole other thing. San Diego is a whole other thing, It's a, but it's very conservative, and it certainly was then. I think it still is. And a military town, big military town. You know, it's beautiful. It's sunny, and the, the beaches are awesome, but it's definitely conservative. And so during the Vietnam War, you know, that's where I was in San Diego, and I remember visiting the the Veterans Hospital downtown where we were there we were brought in to kind of go in and talk to well, I was like in junior high high school to go in and talk to these guys who were in in the hospital because of the war. Um, there were a lot of veterans. There were a lot of um, military families around me. When I was in junior high, it's funny, I have this really strong memory. One of the girls in my class, her dad was a POW. So that would have been the group that John McCain was in. And I remember when they were let go, you know, let out. And we had a big, like a very patriotic assembly at school where we honored him and uh, sang your grand old flag and um, so I was really raised in a very Republican, conservative um, how, atmosphere. How old were you when that was happening? That would have been junior high. Yeah. San Diego is very distinctive from Los Angeles, where we are now. Mm-hmm. Um, and like my experience of San Diego is that it has that military town conservatism. It is also super Southern California-y. Very. Um, like, like flip-flops. Yeah. The beach, uh, for sure. And we lived in the suburbs. My parents still live in the same house we moved into when I was 10. Were you able to match San Diego's level of chill? Or were you like, I got to go to New York or something? Well, I was getting interested in doing plays just because of my high school teacher that I liked a lot, and. Archer, and I went to a huge high school. They barely, like, knew you were there. It was thousands of kids. And then I was working, and I worked on a boat, and I kind of had... 
graduated early just because I had so many classes, not, you know, I mean, I was a good student, but I wasn't like great or anything. I was okay. But I took a lot of classes. So then when I was in my junior year, the counselor was like, you know, do you realize that you actually could just graduate? After And then they stopped be letting people do that. They allowed people to graduate a semester early after that, but not a year. Anyway, so then I was suddenly kind of out. I was working, and I worked for a while. And then I thought, well, I'll go to community college, you know, which was a dollar a unit. And I went to Mesa College, which was this – I stumbled into this little theater program that they had that was run by these two guys, Milt Woodruff, who's still around, and Art's no longer with us. But they – one was the techie guy, and one was kind of more the artsy guy. And then he was he was also an actor, and he would direct the plays. And But they just ran this little theater, basically, and it was great. I'm so grateful for that. And I also liked my other classes. I took women's studies and I took poetry and I had to take one math, cl math class, which I hated. Um, but there was like this great guy who taught math for people who hate math. Um, so it was a – that's why I just like well, – I don't know. When I encourage people to go to college and go get educated, it doesn't have to be at a fancy place. It can just be – it's more like how you do it than where you are. Was there like a production that you were in or even saw that was that made it such that you were like, this is actually not just a thing that I'm doing casually. This is something that I want for my life. I don't know. I mean, I definitely started getting serious about it. And my high school teacher was a very serious woman. Um, and she did do this show with us called Man and Man and God, and it was like you could do scenes from whatever you wanted with that theme. And I have this very clear memory. We had done one show, and we were on our second show, and the intermission of the second show, she came backstage, and she was so angry because we weren't giving it our all. We weren't doing what we had done the night before. And she took this table. She was standing. She was furious, and she grabbed the edge of the table and she picked it up and slammed it down. She almost threw it. And I was so impressed. I was so like, oh my God, she's incredible. That did make an impression on me. And then I just continued to follow my interest. So it was very, what's the word? Kind of, it was, I didn't have a lot of okay, this is it. I'm doing... It was like, oh, I love this. Then I happened to go to Mesa, which happened to have this great theater. So I I just start, kept auditioning, kept doing stuff. And then once I finished that, it was like San Francisco State. I wanted to get away from San Diego. I, I could only go within the state. My dad would pay for me if I stayed in the state. So I wanted to go to a city. So San Francisco was the logical city, and I knew San Francisco State. I learned a little bit about it. But, you know, I mean, I just applied to one place, and I just went there. And um, they also had a good uh, big – they had a big theater department, let's say. It was big, you know. You're a real hero there. Just so you know. I really? Took, I, took a, I took a theater class at uh, San Francisco Get State. Out. And, um, yeah. Who was your teacher? It's basically, I don't remember what her name was. <laughs> it was. I was in high school at the time. My high school abutted San Francisco State, so I would take classes. Oh, you lived right in that neighborhood. San Francisco State. Well, I, I lived elsewhere in San Francisco, but my high school was there. Okay. Anyway, you're a hero at San Francisco State. Well, that's good to know. I All like, the I... Golden Gators. <laughs>
I try to go back as often as I can. The guy that he just retired, who ran it for many years, a guy named Les Wong, was a wonderful, is a wonderful guy. I still hear from him every once in a while, but just a fantastic person. A lot of people in public education are like that. It's like they have kind of a mission. And I loved it. I loved my teachers. I feel really, really grateful. You know, so I I started, I guess it would have been the fall of 78. So that was the year that Harvey Milk and George Moscone were sadly murdered downtown by Dan White. It was kind of the beginning and the end of an era because when I first moved there, everybody was out. It was a place you came, everybody moved there to come out and to be who they were. And it was such a tolerant, it still is, but it was really a tolerant place. And I like that. I'm I'm down with that, you know, being in a place that's very open. And of course, AIDS hit then soon after. So then things got very difficult very quickly. But um you know, before AIDS, there was a few years there where I did get to experience what that was like. And the gay bars were incredible. And there was an open atmosphere, tolerant, I should say. And I really like that about city life. And you ended up doing conservatory training at ACT, American Conservatory Theater, right? Yeah, after college. They're mm-hmm. also very proud of you. And and Denzel, but Denzel always is like, I barely went there because he told me that. Um, yeah, well, that they take credit for him. Hey, if De- if Denzel Washington came by my house for dinner, yeah. I'd put up a plaque. Exactly. That's all I have to say about that. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I pretty much bronzed my eyes after I watched him at a WGA screening of a movie <laughs> do a Q&A. Um, but uh, that was like a really distinctive time in San Francisco history you mentioned uh, the assassination of Harvey Milk and George Moscone, the mayor and supervisor, and, and Harvey Milk for, I mean, probably most people listening know, but was one of the first out uh, gay elected officials in the United States and was murdered by a former fellow supervisor. And it's like a weird in-between time where there had been this blooming of the idea of San Francisco in the 1950s and 60s from the, you know, from the beats through to the hippies. And that was like the first really, really scary thing that happened. When we first moved to California from the Midwest, we were very much like the dorky Midwesterners. And the first trip we took, we took to San Francisco because I think it was because we were visiting my uncle and maybe he was getting married, but we drove down Haight-Ashbury with our windows rolled up to look at the hippies. I remember. So that was, yeah, that would have been 19, you know, 66, 67, right in there. But then I ended up, of course, like living in that neighborhood and having a, a whole taste of that world. We'll wrap up with Annette Benning after the break. Stick around. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Change is hard. Transitions can be even harder. But they're also an opportunity to explore and discover and reimagine things you thought you knew. I'm Anoush Zamarodi, the new host of NPR's TED Radio Hour. And with all this in mind, we've decided to make my entire first episode about reinvention. Subscribe or listen right now. Hello there, ghouls and gals. It is I. April Wolf. I'm here to take you through the twisty, scary, heart-pounding world of genre cinema on the exhilarating program known as Switchblade Sisters. The concept is simple. 
I invite a female filmmaker on each week and we discuss their favorite genre film. Listen in closely to hear past guests like the Babadook director, Jennifer Kent, Winter's Bone director, Deborah Granick, and so many others every Thursday on MaximumFun.org. Tune in if you dare. <laughs> it's actually a very thought-provoking show that deeply explores the craft and philosophy behind the filmmaking process while also examining film through the lens of the female gaze. So, like, you should listen. Switchblade Sisters. Welcome back to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is the great actor Annette Benning. She starred in The Kids Are All Right, American Beauty, and 20th Century Women. Her newest film, Hope Gap, focuses on the end of a nearly 30-year marriage. It's in theaters now. You worked in uh, theater for a long time after you left conservatory, doing especially a lot of classic theater, you did Shakespeare festivals and stuff like that. One of, if not your first screen role was on Miami Vice. <laughs> was that literally your first or among your first? Oh, for sure, among my first. That was supposed to be another girl, and she, for some reason, backed out or couldn't do it at the last minute. So, yeah, I think that they just called my agent, and I really was just starting. And so, yeah, because I remember going to Miami and being in a hotel on the beach and thinking, whoa, this is so amazing. And, you know, I was nervous because I didn't know what I was doing. But I was like the bad guy's girlfriend. And I think I just had – I never got to meet, you know, Don Johnson or anybody <laughs> fancy. I was just part of the kind of the bad guy crew. Yeah, that was that was fun. It was just a couple of days. Great news. We're going to listen to a scene. Uh, you are indeed the bad guy's girlfriend. The bad guy is a is a corrupt cop, and uh, <laughs> and there is this is just this is just some really great episodic television work here uh, that we're going to take a listen to that definitely has not aged at all in the last thirty three years. Glenn, I don't like it. Everything is under control. That's not what I'm talking about. The cop they killed yesterday. I thought the one in Broward was a mistake, but I don't think so anymore. I have no control over these people. The way they do things. I'm not blaming They're you. They're not Boy Scouts. They're very serious people. But I can't go on like this forever. Oh, dear. <laughs> don't worry. Everything is cool. <laughs> I feel like Miami Vice is so, like I've I somehow we've had probably five actors on this show who are uh, incredibly accomplished actors whose first part was on Miami. No Vice. kidding. And I think it's because Miami Vice was this weird combination of the most like regular television show in the world because it's like at the end of the day, it's it's a police procedural, but also like. Luis Guzman's first part was yeah. on it. You know what I mean? Because And it was because Miguel Pinheiro was writing on it and was like his old buddy. <laughs> you know what You're I mean? You're kidding. I no. didn't know that. Not Amazing. Oh yeah. Wow. Well, it was it was considered very stylish. Right. And you it know, was very stylish. You know, because of the colors and the, and the way the guys dressed. It and, still looks really good. Yeah, really hip. 
compared to, I don't know, what, like Adam 12 or something. Yeah. How did you feel about that at, at the time? Like, did you feel like I'm getting a big break and I'm going to be a screen actor now? Or did you feel like, well, I, I backed into this job and I'm Oh, you mean glad- Miami Vice? Yeah. And, and I'm glad to stay in a hotel for three days and then get back to Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, I was doing Ibsen. a pl- Let me see. I was probably... I, was, I don't remember what part of the year it was. So, no, I'd never done any. I was in New York. I got a an off-Broadway play that moved to Broadway, and so that took a while, that whole process. But it was like, so I think it must have been just before that that I got Miami Vice or right around that time. So, no, I really hadn't ever, you know, really. I still was very green having done anything on camera. I was still just kind of auditioning and kind of trying to get something. So I didn't have any... Um, experience or anything. I mean, you had been working for a while by the time you started starring in movies, but you had not been working on screen for all that long. No, 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 I wasn't at all. No, not even that. I mean, by the, you know, when I got a, a movie, I really, you know, really had barely done anything. So I was learning on the, you know, on the job learning, which is fine. What but because I knew how to act, at least I knew how to do that. And I just thought it was so cool that we had to get up so early. <laughs> I don't think it's cool anymore. But I remember thinking, oh, God, we have to get up at 4. This is amazing. We have to get in the van at 4.45? Awesome. Let's drive around the lake or whatever it is. I thought that was so – I was just, you know, making SAG minimum. I thought, this is the best. I was really excited. I still am, but it's not the same. But, you know, it's different. Did you have specific goals or were you like – just riding a riding a wave. Well, I had to make a living, so I was just trying to, you know, make enough money to kind of, um, you know, needed to make some money. Uh, no, well, I t- was, you know, I was just trying to get the the best stuff that I could, and there were some things that I went up for that I just didn't get that weren't very, I think, very good. I don't really remember now what exactly they were, were but there were some things I would have done that would have been considered kind of tacky or something that I just ended up not getting. But my first movie was a Dan Aykroyd John Candy movie, which was super fun to make. What movie was that? Um, the Great Outdoors. That was such a kick, you know. It was such a great experience and fun and um, an adventure, and you know, it was great. <laughs> what was it? How did the experience of being in a movie, like having a big part in the movie, how did that compare to your expectations of what it would be like, or your imaginations of what it would be like? Um, when I went, then the next film I did was called Valmont, which was this period drama that directed by Milos Forman. He had just done Amadeus. So it was this epic period movie. And I had literally never been to Europe. And I was going there to play a French aristocrat. (laughs) Um, So you called John Candy to ask for advice. Exactly. John, what do I do here? Um, But I had auditioned so much for Milos Forman by the time I got the part that I sort of knew kind of how he worked. And he was very demanding and smart. I just adored him. But he was tough. And he did not mince words. He was not from the American school of butter them up and make them feel really great about themselves and then you'll get the best. And he knew I was very inexperienced. But um, so I learned a lot from him because he would just we would do something and he would be like, no, 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 natural, natural. We were all 
phony, basically, I think. And so well, at least I was. And he, so he was he was trying really hard to make us natural. And he was a wonderful man. I learned a lot from him. It was an incredible experience. I mean, they literally had the tailor for the movie was in Rome. So the first time I went to Rome, I was just going to a fitting, which just blows my mind now. You know, it blew my mind then. Um but I definitely sometimes felt like, I can't believe this is like a mistake that I have this. And Was there anything that you did in those very early years of your career on a set that was uh, totally wrong? Wrong in the like silly Not or Not like stupid... in the moral sense. <laughs> I did <laughs> plenty of that. Did you murder anyone? Um, you know, I remember on the on the pilot that I did, they said, sit into the shot. And I thought, I don't know what that means. And I should know what that means. Could you just sit into the shot? And so I just kind of sat forward in the chair. And of course, what I remember is everybody kind of chuckling, but not, I don't know that they actually did. But in fact, is all that means is the camera's on, the camera's set, it's set on the chair. And when they say action, you actually are seen entering and sitting down into the chair in the shot, sit into the shot. But I didn't know what that meant. So those little things that you learn that take, I don't know, a half of a day, and then you can, it's like, oh, someone says hit your mark or sit into the shot or whatever it is, you know what you're doing. It's not like rocket science. The acting part of it's much harder. But I learned a lot from working with Milos because he would, we would do it a lot. We did a lot of takes and he would, if it, if it wasn't right, he was very, tough. It we all of us that worked on the movie sort of bonded over that because he was so critical. But he was right. As I say, I always defend him because he was right and I really appreciate that. I think some people he was actually too hard on and he was quite hurtful to people. But with me, I I felt more like it was helping me because I thought he was right. Because when you start doing period work, suddenly you sit a little more stiffly and you maybe speak in a more pedantic way, which he's saying, that's not, that, stop doing that. That's not how people behaved. They behaved like we are behaving now. Um, and so I'm, I've, I'm very grateful to him for that. And he was kind of a taciturn guy, but authentic, wonderful man. Did you feel like you had to scheme over the arc of your career because of the limitations uh, for actresses and the fact that you started kind of as a, you know, as a grown up, like you were whatever, 30 ish or mm -hmm. something when yeah. you when you started. And so, like, you started playing like hot babe roles. Um, and then, you know, it was not very long after that you were playing mom roles. Mm -hmm. um, and then there's like a, a long, desolate stretch a, a, ahead of that in a lot of actresses' careers because mm. of the kinds of parts there are. Did you have to like come up with a scheme of like, this is how I'm going to figure this out? Or was no, it? No, there's no scheme. No, I just sort of followed things as as they came. And uh, I also did plays in Los Angeles. I wasn't going to New I wasn't going back to New York because I couldn't. I didn't want to be gone. Uh, but as my kids were going, I, I, it took a while. I, I mean, I didn't do one for about 10 years. I don't think it took me. Yeah, that's right. Um, then I started doing plays again. So I would occasionally do a play, which also was kind of 
great for my own sort of sense of work and what I enjoyed and what I was interested in pursuing. But I found things along the way. I was lucky, and, and things came to me that I really loved. And there were a few things I didn't do. I suppose I would have done but that I, you know, I barely remember what they are. There's a few that I didn't want to do because I just couldn't of the timing. I didn't want to leave my kids. So, well, that's another thing. Like you have four kids, mm-hmm. and during the time when they were little, you know, I was looking at your IMDb and like between American Beauty ish and uh, the kids are all right ish. Uh, you know, there you're you were in a movie every other year or something, not two or three a year. And Mm -hmm. I understand why anyone would make that choice. I have kids myself, Mm. but it's a, you know, it's a scary and perilous choice for an, for an actor who's reliant in part on having some juice to get a good part. You know what I mean? Like there's a lot of talented actors (laughs) Mm. Well, yeah, I just sort of would stop and start. And I remember after my last one was born, I think it was a couple of years, I took a couple of years off, which is a blur. (laughs) I had, you know, four little kids. Um, But yeah, I I was lucky because I always wanted to have kids. I still dream about babies. It's like the most (laughs) recurrent theme in my dreams is there's usually a baby involved somewhere and I'm taking care of them or... Um, something. Anyway, so yeah, I was just so in my nature. Um, from when I was little, I wanted to have children. I was a babysitter. I started babysitting when I was really 12, like practically. Oh, and even before that, I worked in the nursery at church. So I was just always enamored of that. And, and that felt very natural to me. And, you know, so yeah, I did. I made, uh, you know, fewer movies there. And, uh, but that's fine. Going away is good. Going away, especially being in the spotlight and stuff, it's just, you know, it's it's nice not to be. One of your kids is transgender, and he transitioned when he was like a young teenager, mid-teenager. Um, and one of my kids is also trans. Mm-hmm. And when she transitioned, like, it really made me realize how much of my idea of who other people were, including people who were really close to me, who I really cared about, like my kids, um, was wrapped up in gender identity. Mm. Like as a person with no, you know, not even at the uh, beforehand, like no uh, ideological or even um, very little, even practical discomfort with the idea of being transgender. I mean, you know, I'm a. I live in Los Angeles. I'm from San Francisco. You know what I mean? Right. Uh, like I had trans friends and stuff. But like one of the things that really struck me was feeling weird and guilty about how much of my idea of my kid, who was a human being, mm. was tied up in my, as it turned out, erroneous presumption that uh, she was a boy. Right. And like I was like, oh, wow. Not just with her, but I was like, am I doing that with everyone in my life? Right. <laughs> like, am I, I think I'm, I'm pretty, I'm a pretty cool dude who's pretty, has a pretty liberated mind. Yeah. But like, uh-oh. Well, in a way, it's the one of the great gifts of having a trans kid, because then 
uh, you be I I know for me that I wasn't even aware of how I saw the world in this binary way. And really, when you think about it, it makes no sense that everyone is on a spectrum and all of us, and that at different points in our lives, some people, you know, some people recognize their own feeling like they're trans at a different point. Some people suppress it, or some people just don't even really kind of come to that until they're older. I think that that's a beautiful thing. I really appreciate that about having a trans kid, that I really began to understand that gender is something that happens in your mind, and that a lot of people who are trans, that's their experience, and that this notion that there are males and females, and that if you, you know, the... the the gender identity that you're assigned at birth is the the one that you are. When you love someone so deeply who you see is having this experience, uh, not just him, but many other people too that I've, that I've come to know, I feel like I really get it. I feel like, oh, wow, that was just such a, a, such a limited way of looking at people. Maybe if that connects to what you're saying at all, you know, and it really is... It seems very natural to me now that some people are trans and some people are cis, and it doesn't have anything to do with the way you look or the way you present or whether you're femme or butch or masculine-looking or feminine-looking or any of that, um, which is another big sort of stupid stereotype about trans people. So... um I love that. I feel very grateful to my kid for opening my eyes. And now I've got to meet all these terribly interesting people through my kid because of this world. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you talking to me about that. Sure. Um, and uh, I I also really appreciate you coming on Bullseye. Thanks. I, I, I was so happy to get to talk to you. And I thank so you. appreciate your extraordinary work. Thank you. And thank you for asking me to do your show with you. And it was really fun talking with you. Thanks. Annette Benning, Hope Gap is in theaters now. Uh, we didn't get to talk about it in the interview, but she was so amazing and brilliant in the amazing and brilliant film 20th Century Women, which came out a few years ago if you didn't see that. So there's two hot Annette Benning picks for you. Enjoy them. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye is produced at MaximumFun.org World Headquarters overlooking MacArthur Park in beautiful Los Angeles, California, where they were shooting The Rookie, the network procedural starring the very funny and charming Nathan Fillion. Uh, when a network television show comes to town, it is quite the operation. Our show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson. Jesus Ambrosio is our associate producer. We have help from Casey O'Brien. Our production fellow is Jordan Cowley. Our interstitial music is by Dan Wally, also known as DJW. Our theme song is by The Go Team. Our thanks to them and their label Memphis Industries for letting us use it. And we have decades of interviews in the can that are available to you to listen to for free. Mike Mills, the writer-director of 20th Century Women, uh, also was on the show. I'm sure he had some things to say about Annette Benning, although I don't remember what they were. I do remember that it was a great conversation. You can find all those on our website at MaximumFun.org, uh, and you can find them 
you know, in your favorite podcast app or wherever else. We're also on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Just search for Bullseye with Jesse Thorne and keep up with the show. And I think that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.